Thank you, church family. It is so good to be in the assembly of God's people this morning, isn't it? Uh, just a couple brief comments. Uh, I won't make this my habit, but before we go to God's word, I uh, just feel like a couple things are in order. Uh, first of all, my wife and I are just beyond thankful for your support of us as we have landed here and transitioned from the Middle East to join this church family. You've been kind to us. You've had us over in your homes. You've made, given us meals. You've uh, just done so much for us. You've welcomed us into the family. Uh, and then even on top of all of that and all of the gifts and everything you've done, uh, just at the end of this week, the elders presented to me and Jamie the love offering that you have uh, collected for us, which uh, is just beyond generous. Honestly, uh, we're not sure what to say in thanks. Uh, it, is, it meets a very practical need for us as we try to get into a new home, uh, but we are just truly humbled by your gratitude, by your kindness towards us. So, so thank you. Uh, with that said, also, we've loved connecting with you all. And uh, if we haven't connected with you, we want to. So uh, whatever that looks like, come talk to us. We want to get to know you. We want to hear your stories and just be part of this family. Whether that's uh, you inviting us out to ice cream, I'm totally fine with that. This is an open invitation to treat my family to ice cream at Jeremiah's. Uh, I'm, I'm just teasing. We'll treat you. But really, we'd love to connect with you. So please talk to us and get to know us. Thirdly, uh, hopefully you notice on the way in, you should have received a sermon series card. Uh, you'll notice that there are two sides of this. On the one side, there's a sermon by series, August through December. You'll see we're going to be working through three different series this fall, mostly in Philippians. We're going to in intersperse that with a couple weeks in Ruth. And then as we head into Advent, we'll be going into the book of Luke. Uh, and so that's the series. The same thing, the same calendar is on the other side, just organized by date, all right? So this is our attempt to help you make the most of our time together in God's Word. As you think about coming and assembling with the saints of God every Sunday morning, one thing you might want to think about doing is reading ahead the passage that we will be studying. Uh, fathers, leaders in your homes, you might want to read this passage with your family around the table. Uh, you might want to read it in your quiet times. I, I don't know, you get creative, think about it, but uh, allow this to equip you to make the most of God's word. Along with that, uh, we have a suggested memory passage at the bottom there, just uh, a, a pinnacle of the book of Philippians that we're going to get, through in a couple, get to in a couple weeks. You will be blessed, I think, and you'll understand the book better if you get this centerpiece of what the book is all about. So that's just a suggestion from us to you. You can stick this in your Bible, use it as a bookmark, uh, and hopefully it will help you in the coming weeks. And then lastly, uh, before we go to God in prayer, friends, it just has been, uh, for me, just a heavy week as I've just been praying and looking to this uh, responsibility that you have entrusted to me. Uh, I think it's James 3, says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, 
as I step into this pastorate, as I step into this position as your teaching pastor, may I just ask that you would pray for me, that you would pray for me and my family. Friends, it is no light matter for us to go before a holy and real God with whom we will indeed one day give an account. And I, I don't take this lightly. Would you pray that I would be faithful to the task in front of me? With that in mind, let's join together and go before God in prayer as we go to his word. Almighty God, we praise you today. God, you are indeed great. You are holy. You are righteous. There is none like you, and we praise you. Father, we know that we are not like you. We come before you as sinful people, and so we come to you only through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your work in us. And as, as we gather today as your body, I'm just reminded of the needs of this body here in front of me. So we, we just want to pray, Father. We pray that you would be with those in our body who are grieving today. God, we pray that you would be with our sister Sue Medley as she grieves the loss of our brother Jerry. We thank you, oh God, for Jerry's faithfulness during his time on earth. We pray that our church body can love our sister Sue well in the days and years ahead. Father, be with those in our body today who are hurting. We pray for Cheryl Scrivens. Be with her, oh God. Father, strengthen our brother Walt as he cares for Cheryl. God, we, we pray that you would be with those in our body who are rejoicing today. We thank you for bringing home so Sophie Worley from the hospital yesterday. We thank you for the Worley family and the grace that they are to this fellowship. Father, now be with us, the body that is gathered in this place. God, I, I pray that you would open our ears to hear from your word. Father, let your spirit work in this place and use my feeble words to accurately and faithfully explain your eternal word. So meet with us now, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have ever been the recipient of bad encouragement. Perhaps at a difficult time, someone with, with good intentions has tried to say something that, to you that has just not been helpful. I've been on enough pastoral visits and in enough very difficult situations to, to know that it's very easy to put your foot in your mouth when you're trying to be helpful. Perhaps some of the worst encouragement I've ever received came when preparing to go to the mission field. I was visiting a church and I was preaching through the series of Jonah, uh, through a series, through the book of Jonah rather, and it was, it was on a chilly winter morning. I remember being in this small church, and after the service, a, an older gentleman came up to me down front. Uh, he came with a thick accent, clearly from somewhere in, in South Asia. I can still remember his, his giant winter coat and his giant fur hat that he wore on his head with white snowy hair just kind of peeking around the edges of the hat. And there, uh, talking to me, he was clearly from the other side of the world and was excited to talk to me and counsel me as I was headed overseas. He felt like he had insider information on what I was going to do. And so after making clear to me how much he knew about the Middle East, he proceeded to tell me and my dear wife 
who, mind you, were about to get on an airplane to go serve in the Middle East, how hopeless our task was. You'll never be successful over there, he candidly told me. They'll never listen to you. I'm telling you, they'll never listen to you. I can still remember his voice ringing in my head as he, as he speaks to me with his giant fur hat on, right? And he says, don't go to the Muslims. Don't go. They'll never listen to what you have to say. It's horrible. Now, I truly believe this dear man in his, in his realism was trying to be helpful, but he couldn't have been less encouraging. His words in my situation didn't fill me with any hope. They didn't set my mind in the right place. They didn't point me to something beyond myself. No, he did the opposite. He pointed me to myself and how I wasn't enough. And he was right. I am not enough. His words were not encouraging. Well, today, as we begin our series in the book of Philippians, we find the opposite. We find truly life-giving words. These are eternal words. These are not empty words. They're words meant to disciple and mature the church in Philippi in their union with Christ. Philippi is a city that Paul had visited in, in Acts 16, you can read about, where he planted a church. The letter we're studying this fall is intended to be received like this to a whole church and is particularly marked by a continual tone of joyful encouragement. That's the tone of this book. Paul here isn't rebuking like he does with the Galatian church. He, he isn't giving reproof concerning church discipline like he does with the first church in, first, uh, in Corinth. Uh, we see none of the, the sober warnings that, he, that is offered in the book to the Hebrews. No, here in this letter, Paul is teaching bedrock foundational truths for how this congregation can find their lives in Christ. Here in this letter, it is, it is a joyful, humble, unity-filled letter. So those are some of the key themes we'll see here. It's, it's radically Christ-centered, it's a call to humility, and it's a call to unity for the church. And unlike my bold friend with the fur hat, Paul is doing this with genuine encouragement, genuinely building us up. So let's dive in. If you've brought your Bibles open to Philippians, we're just going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1. As I preach today and in the coming weeks, you'll be helped best if you have your Bible in front of you. And if you just learn to, to read along, because all I'm going to be doing is explaining the text and helping us grow as we just see God's word here together. Today we'll get a taste for why Paul can be encouraged, and we'll see why our church can also be encouraged. Specifically, this passage that we're going to be in today will uh, answer the question, how is Christ at work in the Philippian church? If you're taking notes, I have three answers to that question. Those three answers will be my three points for you to take notes. How is Christ at work in the Philippian church? We'll see, number one, a common identity in Christ. Number two, a faithful partnership in Christ. And third, a prayerful hope in Christ. So identity, partnership, hope. That's where we're going. I pray that 
as we see Paul's encouragement to the Philippians, our church will be more confident of God's work in our body. So first, Paul has a reason for encouragement because of their common identity in Christ. Look at the unique way that Paul opens this book in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, his identity and the church's identity is found in Jesus Christ. If, if you were to read other letters in the first century Roman Empire, you'd find that this represents a, a common salutation, the beginning of a letter. But it's also unique for the way that Paul wrote his letters, typically. It shows the direction that Paul intends to go in the book. You see, in most of Paul's other letters, like Galatians and Ephesians, First uh, and Second Corinthians, Titus, and others, he normally starts by identifying himself as an apostle, reminding the church of his God-given authority. But what does Paul do here? What do you see in verse 1? Notice, Paul writes like a friend would, merely giving his name alongside of Timothy, a younger fellow worker. He shows humility. And notice how he defines himself. He says he and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. The word here for servants literally means slaves. Some of your versions might have the word bond servants. Think about how counterintuitive this is. Here is the spiritual authority of this church, the apostle who is established by God, self-identifying as a slave. Now, many of you work in a workplace with an authority figure. Picture for a moment your boss that you'll see tomorrow morning, or your, your boss's boss, or picture maybe your CEO of the company that you're in. Picture someone right now who naturally should have authority and respect. Imagine how strange and counterintuitive it would be for that person to self-identify with the lowest possible position that they could. This is what Paul does here. The great apostle, the church planter, a slave. By the way, this is uh, foreshadowing later in the letter where Paul will talk about another truly great authority who takes on the form of a servant and is born in the likeness of men. But this is especially counterintuitive because Paul was writing this letter as an apostle, and he was writing it in chains. Picture him somewhere sitting in a dirty jail cell and writing, perhaps dictating to Timothy, bound in chains. I think my inclination, if I was there, would be to assert my authority. I would want to remind the church of my true position in the case they forgot because I'm in prison. But, but Paul here follows the example of Christ, and he tells them that he is merely a slave of Jesus. See, Jesus is his identity. He is a servant of Jesus. I wonder how you naturally identify yourself. How do you introduce yourself when meeting someone new? 
Are there any status symbols that you perhaps pur purposely hope will come up casually in conversation to help people mentally put you in the right hierarchy? Perhaps it's a degree or a job title that you take pride in. Perhaps it's tenure in a certain field or your longevity in a certain place. What do you subtly use to promote yourself? Now, don't get me wrong, respect has its fitting place. Uh, for those who are working in public spaces and in marketing and elsewhere, respect has a rightful place. But hear the point here. Seeking to promote your own status, that is, your own greatness, it is a bit like, like opening the door, the front door of your house, when there's a lion sitting right outside. Pride is crouching at the door, ready to jump in. And Paul here, instead, he embraces humility. He exalted in his servanthood of Jesus Christ. Jesus was his identity. But not only was Jesus Paul's identity, but it's also the identity of the church that he's writing to. Look at the second half of verse 1. He writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. I need to pause here because we're going to see a lot, this a lot in the book. What does he mean? In Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, is a phrase that comes up all the time in Paul's writing. Paul understands that when we become believers, our lives are wrapped up in Christ. All of Christ's benefits are ours. All of Christ's righteousness becomes ours. All of his access to and fellowship with the Father become ours. We are in Christ Jesus. And Scripture teaches this, doesn't it? Doesn't Scripture teach that we are grafted into Christ Jesus, like a vine is grafted into and connected to its own branches. Or it teaches that we are built into Christ Jesus, like bricks in a building are built on top of a cornerstone. Or it teaches that we are united to him as intimately as a groom is united to a bride in the sacred union of marriage. Ephesians 5. We are in Christ Jesus. Calvin writes this. He says, For this is the design of the gospel, that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into his body. So church, be encouraged today because if God has saved you, you are in Christ Jesus. This is your identity. And it's a corporate and distinct identity. Why do I say that? Well, that seems to be what Paul is next reflecting on here in the passage. Look at the text. He writes, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, when you hear the word saint here, don't think of the Roman Catholic idea of a special person to be revered, perhaps prayed to, perhaps someone we build a statue of. No, literally, this word saint merely means a people set apart from the world around them. And this word, it's in the plural. 
So it's to all of the saints. It's talking to the whole church, to the set-apart people of God. We might think of 2 Peter 2.9, right, where Peter writes, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. When Paul writes to all the saints at Philippi, he is writing to a people who are identifiably distinct from the world around them. Friends, this is what a church is. A church is a set-apart gathering of believers that have covenanted together to be distinct from the world around them. If you're here today and you're a visitor, let me just say I'm so glad that you're with us here today. Hopefully one of the things you're witnessing as you watch us gather is you're seeing a people who are turning from their sin, as Matt said earlier, a people who were sinners and are still sinners, but are turning from that to be distinct, to be like Jesus. If you're here today as a member, this is why you should take church membership so seriously. Because it's not that we want to just increase our church roles or increase our giving or pat ourselves on the back for having a bigger church. No, we care about church membership because we want to practice what the Bible has always displayed. That is that God's people are clearly, identifiably set apart as his people. They are distinct and identifiable. I've heard this described as a, as a bright, clear line of membership. And it's important because it tells the watching world around us who it is that are Jesus followers. Well, the fact that he is talking about the church here is also clear because of where he goes next. He references then the leaders of the church at the end of verse 1. Did you see that there? He, he first talks about this word, overseers. This is a word that scripture uses interchangeably with the words elders and pastors. This is the role in the local church that is made up of qualified men who lead and, and shepherd and provide spiritual authority to the church. They equip the saints for ministry. You'll notice here in verse 1 and across the New Testament that the role is always found in the plural. Elders and overseers or pastors always serve in a plurality. So here at First Boynton, as I enter into the eldership, I serve as one of six elders, as one of six of your pastors. You'll notice also there's deacons, literally meaning servants, and is here referring to a specific role in the church set aside to facilitate the tangible needs of ministry. So this is who Paul is addressing. He's addressing all of the saints in the whole church with the elders and the deacons. And he greets them with grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In summary, Christ is at the center of this church. He is their common identity. Well, let's keep moving. Uh, number two, we see here reason for encouragement from their faithful partnership. Paul is encouraging us that Christ is at work in the church because he sees the Philippians' faithful partnership in Christ. This next section that we'll read offers thanks for this partnership. 
Look at verses 3 through 7 with me. He writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here we find a section of thanks to God. Here was a church in Philippi that had partnered with this missionary, Paul. If we read ahead in chapters 2 and 4, we find that they had sent a brother named Epaphroditus to go and to encourage this missionary, Paul. If we go and read ahead later in chapter 4, we find that this church had sent financial gifts, even when nobody else had, to support Paul as he was leaving Macedonia, and then again when he was in Thessalonica. This church owned the work of the Great Commission. They partnered with Paul. So let me just walk through this quickly. Look at today's passage at the shape of this encouraging partnership. First, look at verse 3. This partnership leads to thanks. And then in verse 4, this leads to being constantly thankful. He says, always thanking God. And then at the end of verse 4, the partnership leads to joyful thanks. Paul is made happy because of this partnership. And then in verse 5, we see this partnership is one that was lasting. They had been with Paul from the beginning. As one preacher suggested here, perhaps Paul is thinking back to when he first met Lydia by the river, and she became the first believer to help start this new church. You can read about that this afternoon in Acts 16, if you'd like. Then look down at verse 7. Notice that this here is an affectionate partnership. This partnership leads Paul to hold the Philippian church in his heart. So he's become attached. And he thinks it's right. He says it's rightful for me to feel this way about you all. It's a rightful affection and joy in the gospel as they partner together. Friends, can you kind of get a picture of what's happening here? Perhaps in history you've, you've read letters of a soldier writing home from the field. Perhaps picture a Civil War soldier writing back to his family that had sent him. And he's sharing his affection and his, his love for his family, his joy for them, his, his thanks for their help as he's pushing forward in the war. This is somewhat of what we have here. We're peering into Paul, bound in chains in a Roman prison, picture a candle by his side, writing to this church that has helped encourage him and send him forward. They've partnered together. As I was reflecting on this this week, I couldn't help bring to mind the partners that we had here. Jotted an email to Vladimir and Phoebe as they serve over in uh, Western, Eastern Europe. Uh, in a real way, Vladimir and Phoebe, this is, with them, this is what they're doing, right? They're becoming an extension of us as we partner with them in the gospel, as we partake with them in grace. And this is fundamentally because we share in grace with them. That's what the text says. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 7, we are partakers of grace. 
or when he parallels that in verse 5, saying we are partners in the gospel. In a particular sense, the Philippians are gospel partners through their support. But in a more general sense, in a broader sense, the Philippians share in the same gospel as Paul because they too receive the same grace from Jesus that Paul received by being in Christ together. If you're a visitor here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, or, or maybe you're a youth here today and you're still deciding for yourself what you believe, well, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Chances are you've heard people talk about grace before at church. This idea of grace is very important for us as Christians because Christians have the audacity to believe that everyone in the world has done wrong against God. We believe that everyone is guilty against God for the wrong that they've done. I believe if you're honest with yourself, you know that you have done wrong. You know that you have not lived as you should live. Our wrong against an eternal God means that we deserve an eternal punishment. We deserve God's justice. We deserve God's wrath. Our only hope is grace. Undeserved kindness from God, we find that only in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth as the Son of God. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, and then he died in our place on the cross before being raised from the grave. If we repent from our sins and if we place our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, not what we have done, then we will be eternally saved. We are recipients of this grace and we are united to his church. Friends, I, I pray that if you hear this message today and you realize that this is not a reality in your life, that you talk to someone, that you talk to me. I'll be standing right down front here after the service, after we finish, about how you can learn to receive this good salvation for your future and for now. Well, back to verse 7. Paul understands that the church shared in the grace that he received by partnering with him in the gospel, both as he defended the gospel and as he was imprisoned for the gospel. It's no wonder that Paul was encouraged in this letter. Paul saw God working through the Philippians in their faithful partnership. Well, we should move on. Uh, for those that are keeping track, I didn't comment yet on verse 6. So hang with me for just a minute, and I'll return to that in just a second. Before that, consider with me a third and final way that Paul sees Christ at work in the Philippian church. This time, in the next portion of verses, Paul is not looking back at the, what God has done in their partnership together. No, this time, Paul is looking forward. And in verses 8 through 11, we see Paul's encouragement through a prayerful hope in Christ. A prayerful hope in Christ. Read verses 8, and 11, 8 through 11 with me. He writes, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, in verse 8, with God as his witness, Paul is profoundly desirous for the Philippian church. He writes to this body, this church of Philipp at Philippi, because of his love for them. And he prays for them. That's what he does. He loves them, and so he prays for them. And we see that in verses 9 through 11. We, we see a model for how we can pray in verses 9 through 11. I wonder how your prayer life is. I wonder how you're doing at praying for others in this church. Listen to this passage, and hopefully it will help guide you. In verse 9, Paul first prays that these Christians would have an abounding love. Literally, this is a love that is beyond ordinary measure. What a great thing to pray for. Think about the, that word in verse 9, abounding, abundant. It's, it's overflowing. It's not a scarce love. It's not an occasional love that he's praying for. No, he's, Paul prays that this church would have this kind of love that just keeps coming and coming within that church. I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of abounding love. We live in a day where love is primarily acceptance and freedom. Love is primarily just an affection. We are conditioned by our age to think of love as a, as a free affection to one another. As long as there's plenty of it, our culture would say, you are free to love as you desire. Our culture would be happy to hear this part. Our culture would be happy to hear Paul say that there should be an abounding love. Think of John Lennon who said, it doesn't matter who you love, where you love, why you love, when you love, or how you love. It only matters that you love. But is this true? Friends, the kind of love that Paul is praying for here is something more than just affection. Notice in the next verse, Paul is praying for a wise love. Verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. The type of love that the mature Christian develops is one that is both abounding and discerning. It has the ability to approve and to, to see what is right and what is wrong, to discern between them. This godly love can see what is excellent in the eyes of God. By the way, what a good thing to pray for your elders. I think all of your elders would plead with you to pray for that. Pray that we would be men that have an abounding love with all discernment. Think about this. Despite the mantra of our day, we know instinctively, we do know that love must be abounding and discerning. I, I love my, my son, my four-year-old son, Noah. If you haven't met Noah, uh, you're missing out. He's a joy in our home. But all the affection in the world that I have for Noah will not be enough if I don't stop him when he goes to put his hand on the stove or when he goes to play with an electrical outlet. 
I can say I love him, I can have genuine affection for him, but if I don't discern and act on what is truly good for him and stop him from playing with that electrical outlet, my love has no wisdom in it. In the same way, Christian love, the love that Paul prays for here, is a wise love that can approve what is excellent. It distinguishes between right and wrong before the eyes of God. By the way, interestingly, Paul seems to regularly pray for this type of discernment for the churches he's loving. Uh, jot down these two verses if you're taking notes. Maybe read them in your devotions. Colossians 1.9 and Ephesians 1.17. Notice his regular concern for knowledge and understanding to be a central part of what's going on in the believer's life as we mature. So let me ask you again. Are you praying for others? For Paul, notice the logic here. Affection leads to prayer. Do you pray for those you care for? Fathers, do you pray for your family as you lead them? Husbands and wives, do you pray for your spouses? Youth, do you pray for your parents? Do you pray for your siblings? Do you realize that if you're a church member here, you've also promised to pray for the other church members in this room? In our church covenant, we agree to exercise an affectionate care and not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. So church members, do you pray for other members of this local church? Friends, if we can become a church that prays these things for one another, we will grow. But this wise love, this discerning and abounding love, is a love that also brings fruit. Notice in the text, Paul then prays that they may so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. The logic here is that abounding love is filled with discernment, and godly discernment bears the fruit of holy living. Paul's desire is that we be, he says, pure and blameless. So to be pure means to be unmixed with sin in your life. To, to, to be blameless means to be innocent of blame before God. And this is the fruit of righteousness, verse 11, that can only come through Jesus Christ. This is the same idea of verse 6, the verse I, I conveniently passed by just a moment ago. And we should close. So as we close, let's look back at that marvelous promise that we see in verse 6. It parallels the end of the passage here. Look at verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here is real and true encouragement. This is one that gives us true hope. God's gracious work in the Philippian church is something that God has started and God will finish. 
Worship with me. Worship even right now in this service as you meditate, as you think on this. Paul first begins with this. He says, I am confident of this. He's confident, I'm sure, and he wants us to be confident. And then he says that he who began a good work in you, that good work here is evidenced in the Philippian church helping Paul. But more fundamentally, as we talked about earlier, it's that they are partakers of grace with Paul. They have believed in Jesus Christ by faith, and they have received the grace of God and the forgiveness of their sins. They are in Christ. A good work of God's grace has begun in their hearts as a church. And notice, who started this good gospel work in their church body? Verse 6 says that God did. They didn't manufacture God's work of grace in their midst. Paul didn't manufacture God's work of grace in Philippi. Lydia didn't do it. No, that's not how spiritual life works. That's not how it starts. Dead souls don't raise themselves to new life. Lazarus doesn't stand up and come out of the grave by his own command. No, dry bones don't put flesh on their own bodies. And the Philippian church doesn't become partakers of grace in the gospel by their own power. And First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, our church doesn't grow in Christ by our own power. No, God is the one at work. God is the one who formed the congregation at Philippi, and God is the one who formed our congregation here at First Boynton. And since he did this, since he was the one that did this, he will bring it to completion. The inevitability of this, it's, it's beautiful. This will happen. It's, it's like a, a nuclear bomb that once it's detonated, the chain reaction must occur and will dramatically alter everything in its path. It will happen. Or it's, it's like a, a ray coming from the sun, which once the light is emitted out of the sun, it will continue on, even across light years of space, until it is absorbed into something. In the same way, a work that God begins in the human heart will inevitably reach its completion. This is true both individually for you and corporately for our church. Not only will Christ preserve you, but he will preserve his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Friends, apply this to your hearts today. You can trust God. You can be confident in him finishing what he starts. What an encouragement this should be. God will complete what God has begun. Those whom he has called, he will bring to himself. Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise God. As I step into this pastorate, it's no secret that this church has been through a difficult year. I know there's hurt. 
and, and I can only imagine that there are even moments of unbelief. What is God doing? Perhaps even questioning. And, and while I would be slow to make any promises for what God will specifically do here, take heart, because we, as the people of God, can rest assured knowing that God will finish what he began in his people. In just a few moments, we'll sing these words together. With every breath, we long to follow Jesus. For he has said he will bring us home. And day by day, we know he will renew us until we stand with joy before the throne. To this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still our lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. First point in looking to Jesus in faith, rest assured that he who began a good work in us, he who has united us together in Christ Jesus will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for being kind enough to begin a good work in our hearts. This is only of you, and we know this. And we praise you for being kind enough to gather together this assembly of believers in this place. We look to you in worship and praise, trusting that you will finish what you have begun. Father, be glorified in us. For your name and your glory we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ.